Hello and welcome to D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today we're going deep on creator whitelisting with Ed Staples, Director of Media for D2C Darling Brand, The Farmer's Dog, and Caroline LeVere, founder and CEO of Grapevine AI, which provides high-performance whitelisted social campaigns at scale and on demand. If you're looking for incremental scale from new, unique touch points in your social feed, it's time to consider whitelisting with creators. Anyone who's done this knows how much work goes into building campaigns this way, which is why Grapevine's end-to-end service is so attractive to Ed and the farmer's dog. In this podcast, you'll hear all about how Ed builds out his creator campaigns on Grapevine. You'll learn about the power of comparison campaigns from third parties, how whitelisted campaigns produce higher AOV and LTV, and why creator content is absolutely critical going forward in our creative as targeting world. On with the show. Word of mouth is one of the oldest forms of marketing, right? I'm gonna trust opinions of like restaurants if I hear something from a friend versus if like I see an ad from the restaurant. And so this is just almost like a viral word of mouth strategy to really get that social proof and get people that you don't even have someone that looks like you, feels like you, talks like you, you can relate to that's telling you something versus the brand is telling you something. We are now more used to than ever before encountering random stuff and like your FYP on TikTok and buying a product as a result of some stranger saying, hey, I actually really like this. So, you know, can we create opportunities for people to trust publishers they've never heard of? Yes, because it doesn't boil down to who you are, it boils down to what you're saying and how you're saying it. Caroline, Ed, Welcome to the D2C Podcast. Super excited to have you here. And why don't we start off with you and talk a little bit about your experience using creators and influencers for the farmer's dog over the last few years? Well, man, I think creators and influencers became like a you know big thing, obviously, over the last five, six years. But I think it's only really over the last maybe two, max three, where leveraging creators and influencers and paid media became like a real thing, almost like a necessity for paid social strategies. I feel like we've yeah, I've only been at the farmers like for the last eight months, so I can't really speak to just like you know the last few years of the farmers story. But I, I think all companies that I've worked at have tried to figure out what the best way to leverage these partners are. You know, the presumption is that by laying into more organic creative, and this is still true even like two years ago, not just like last year, but even two three years ago. I think the presumption was that by leaning into creators we could not just own greater market share of the available impressions that we're presumably showing to the audiences that we're targeting as in like if i advertise as the farmer's dog i can also advertise as caroline the influencer or eric the influencer and then like have greater visibility amongst the share of voice of an individual's impressions that they will see on like instagram or something like so like the idea was to like maximize that but in hopes that by paying for more impressions uh, across multiple accounts or multiple profiles, we would get higher CVRs with those of, I guess, more organic looking reviews and honest reviews of the product that would, you know, then generate more sales that would make that spend more palatable and easily justifiable. So I think that's just been everyone's approach so far. What, what would you say has been your biggest challenge in like scaling that style of marketing in the past? Well, I think it really depends on where you're sourcing the creative from. And there's like maybe two or three places like you can either go to the influencer directly and like they can uh, murder you with whitelisting costs like over months right and they ask you to commit up front so you don't really know if it's going to work for the next 30 days or like 90 or like the 180 so it's like there's that challenge they're working with them directly 
there's also like working with like individual creative agencies who can create content similar to that which you would whitelist through a specific influencer and they'll charge you on a percent of media which can very easily be much higher than the conversion rate or click-through rate offset that you would need to like justify the percent of media and then you can work with them it's like grapevine who sort of like are in between you know still percent of media much cheaper but d2c oriented content creation which is not necessarily what all influencers will do for you and i think that's ultimately like the biggest challenge with working with any sort of creators like can they sell to people who don't know them because when you work with influencers you, you pay for like their opinion being broadcasted to their audience but when you whitelist you don't know if anyone's going to care about like and the influencer's opinion when it's broadcasted to like tens of millions of impressions so working with someone who can vet the people that we would work with and ensure that the briefs are such that lean into proven out strategies and new tests that might improve upon the expected click-through rate and conversion rate difference or lift versus like business as usual ads is positive and that's sort of like what makes uh caroline's uh team exciting Caroline, why don't we why don't we bring you in here from from Grapevine? What uh, tell me a little bit about your background with the with the business? Yeah, so my background with Grapevine, we started the business about a year and a half ago. Just noticed kind of what Ed was saying: this opportunity in the market where brands are needing content from third party voices. They're needing that creator content to leverage on any paid social platform, and it can be a pain for them to produce. Whether they're you know Ed mentioned contacting creators individually, which by the way has its lists of negotiating the deals, but also just a, you know, a headcount to actually go do the work and find the creators and contact them and n- negotiate and everything about that, write the briefs, go back and forth with the editing. Then there's the other options that are some of those bigger creative agencies. Um, there's also some platforms where it's just self-serve and so it can help with finding the creators, but the quality can be really hit or miss. So there was this gap in the market of performance-driven creator content that's really curated for the brand when they need it. So we launched with that and have grown the business a ton since then and now work with brands on really any paid social platform and provide them with any creator voice, static ad, video ads, editorial ads, and then also do the testing piece. So like I was mentioning, you don't necessarily know, will that resonate and how will it resonate? And so that's where we come in to help come up with those ideas that we have a pretty high bet will work, but also then go back and forth and, and iterate and test and do it at a really high speed to make sure that that brands always have content they can be running. The other piece too, and, and this is coming from me that haven't, I haven't organized whitelisting campaigns in a while, but when you're working with people that aren't like, you know, in a grapevine system, even just that process of explaining the process of what whitelisting is, how to get it hooked up is, is, can be such a hurdle. So I imagine that's a good piece that you solve as well. Yeah, 100%. So it's very easy for a brand. They just pick a creator. Here, I can, um, let me just share an example quickly so you can see just how easy it is. Let me share your screen. So we make it really easy for brands. They can browse um, creators in our network at any point. They can favorite them. We'll also recommend. They can see ideas that our team has. The brand can also add ideas. From here, all that they have to do is select the creator and then hit create campaign. And then literally they wait and it's like Uber Eats. You know, you watch the track, the progress of your campaign throughout here. You can see it's in briefing mode. We're creating it. It's ready to launch. We give the brand everything they need to launch. And to your point on the actual handle sharing, it just shows up in the brand's business manager. We cover all of that. We work with the creator to make sure that it's really, really simple. We provide creatives, the article. So all the brand now has to do is launch this in Facebook. 
they can sit back and, and relax and not have to worry about any of the heavy lifting and any of the headache that can be every single piece of trying to launch a whitelisting campaign. I, I think, Ed, you spoke about it earlier, and it's just, I imagine products like this just really improve the hit rate because there's so much in that goes into organizing these campaigns from the creative to the whitelisting to the making sure the influencer is the right person. If you're starting from scratch, I bet the hit rate is a lot lower than when it's like fully curated in this in this context. I think you're right, but there's a little bit of nuance there. I don't think it's the product. I think it's the team behind the product, right? Like there are other products out there that can also enable you to easily whitelist and allow you to find influencers. But that still puts the work on you to identify what the actual influencer you need to work with is, right? which is not too dissimilar to you reaching out to someone through their agency or through like a DM. And what I really like about like the ethos of uh, Caroline's team on the great price side is that like they are performance marketers. So they know what has worked. They got visibility into other brands so they can share with us like what could be working or what the test should be. And it sort of really, if anything, outside of making things extremely convenient, it makes them convenient by not requiring me to dedicate a lot of the hours of my team that goes into actually not just vetting the influencer, but briefing in the actual content. Like this is one of those very rare models where having like a middle person is actually really good because it really cuts off a lot of the extra time that you would commit to just making sure that what you're doing is kind of a good idea. Whereas here, you can actually go into it feeling very confident that the influencers that you're working with are likely ones who have done this before, at least once with some success at a minimum, because they're being vetted by the team before they're even part of the network. Whereas with other platforms, anyone is welcome because they're just trying to increase their, um, I guess, who's from like a client perspective like me or from an influence perspective like people who you would pay as a brand, right? So I just think having that additional filter is what gives this company a lot more value or a better natural worth competitors. Yeah. And then that data piece also something that Ed touched on is really having a pulse on what is working and seeing broader trends across all of the verticals that we work in and looking to see what is working. How can we now apply learnings to really improve like the quality across the board of, all of everything that we're doing and increase the hit rate right off the bat, change creative briefs, try new, you know, we have a hook that worked really well in these two different verticals. Let's now try that hook in a few other verticals and, and continue to grow and help brand scale. How does your content work? So a lot of, you know, um, at the agency we're partnered with, we do a lot of like creator content that's just sort of direct to camera where they're, they're pitching, pitching a product, they're showing how it's used from their perspective, things like that. What kind of content do you sort of specialize with at Grapevine? Is it that, that direct to camera stuff or is it more, is it more educational, more infographic style? Yeah, a little bit of everything, honestly, it really is going to depend on the brand and what they're looking for. Um, we have brands that have leaned into doing comparison campaigns. And so the videos, and then also there's also an editorial article component. So it's video ads, it's static ads, it's the creator whitelisting handle, whitelisted handle, but it's also this editorial article. And so you've leaned into the comparison thing that can work really well when there are other names in the space that are as big of a name, if not bigger of a name than your brand is to really capitalize on their brand awareness and now use this. The goal of these articles is not to trash the competitor and say that they're terrible. It's just to highlight the value props of what may make someone choose your brand versus their brand um, in a really authentic and educational way. So that's one thing we definitely do like just the testimonial direct to camera videos, unboxing videos, five reasons why. What, our, what we're trying to do is uncover problems that, that consumers have and how the brand can be a solution to those problems. And now how can we bring that into a variety of different styles of content? Sounds very much like performance marketing. Uh, <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> I, I will also just quickly add that like I've worked in Clarence for a very long time and like the best performing ad I've ever done um, or we've ever like built together has been a comparison ad, which I think is like really funny because I, I just personally as an end user or as like a person who's advertised. So I just like, I don't buy off of them, but like so many people do. And it's like, it's the behavior of the customers there is also very different. So it's like, it's really important to keep in mind that like what you're putting out there will beget different types of customers. And if you're solving enough to sort of read into the data to recognize that, then you might actually be able to like justify even higher CPAs on an ad that you would otherwise say no to, right? So being able to like measure that through those lenses, those lenses being like what type of content performs and how does it get a different customer is actually pretty interesting. But like the comparison ads, I was always skeptical of and they always worked like this brand versus that brand. Which is interesting because that's not a super personal style of like creator content in a way, right? Like that, so it's it's a little counterintuitive that you, you're going to see something that looks like visually polished from a creator and have it still resonate in the same way that maybe the rest of their content does with their audience. Yeah. So we structure the comparisons. We I like to say that it's like a little bit of a science now that we apply to it, where it's not just like saying, hey, here's like a chart and here's some differences between this brand and this brand. Because by the way, we've tested the chart and we've tested content that has the chart at the top or where most of the article is a chart hasn't performed. It's when you can get into like, if you have this problem. So like, you know, one of the first ones we ever did was mirror versus Peloton. It was like, if you, you know, if you prefer to something that's smaller to save space in your apartment, if you like cardio, you might, you know, if you like cardio, my opinion is you might like this one more. If you want to be able to do personal training, if you're looking for a larger diversity of strength and toning classes, you might want to pick this one. And so really lean into like the, you can bring in that authentic piece through the lens in which you're writing the content and producing it. To Ed's point, it will hit different people in the market. Well, I was going to say, it's like, it's also just like, like in, to, to lean on what Carolyn said, like the last statement, like you're talking to different people, at different points in the market. It's like, th that's like the key differentiator. I think that we spent a lot of time thinking a lot about like, well, what are the hook rates and what are like the hold rates and to like really evaluate how people consume media. But I think we as marketers might undervalue like static ads that just say this versus that because the person who's reacting to that has probably already been in the market for that product. And just like the, just, just to give you like my experience, like at all companies where I've done, because um, this is true everywhere, um, but at all companies where I've done this versus that articles, um, oh, ads that, this versus that ads that feature articles that show you that comparison written in the voice of like a reviewer, um, the view through rates are a lot higher. So if you're skeptical of like view through contribution to the business, then, you know, maybe these are not for you, but at the farmer's are right? Like we have a long consideration cycle product, you know, it's expensive and it takes, it's right for your dog was a change of your habit. So it takes a little bit more time for you to like adjust and make the decision. But so we value view through quite a bit. But if you're like selling razors, maybe you might not want to value view through. So it really depends on the business. But what is interesting to me in terms of like seeing higher view through rate, which I've seen everywhere, is that these are likely people who've already been wanting to buy your product. And this is like seeing that impression. Even if you don't end up clicking through, knowing by interpreting the actual ad, knowing which one is actually the winner, which you can kind of do sometimes, you'll just go ahead and go buy it. So... I don't know. There's like a lot of value there in identifying different people at different parts of the funnel um, through different types of creative. Exactly. And like using this article, to Ed's point, we have a lot of brands that will use these comparison articles, honestly, strictly just in retargeting because they want to target consumers that have some brand awareness. They know that they're in the market and this might be the final piece that pushes them over the edge. Similarly, using it on search when people are searching for your competitors, bidding on, on those competitor keywords 
with a con- with content that educates them about the difference is just going to be way more powerful than driving them to your own landing page. It just bakes social proof into the process. And that's that's the part that I think is so interesting. We're talking about it a little bit here, but it, like in marketing, it's so easy to get locked into your blind spots or into like like, like the hooks that you know are working. You, get, you kind of put those out there. But what I love about whitelisting specifically is it just adds that other element to like to your creative in a way, right? Like not only are you promoting your product, the creative that promotes the product, there's also this aspect of like who the person is, who's, even if you don't know that person, you can see like, oh, they're, uh, they're this kind of person or they're, they're, they're really into fitness. I'm really into fitness. It just, it just becomes another layer of the targeting that can create affinity to your brand. And especially, I love that concept of doing it lower in the funnel, like in retargeting, because that's really where you're in, you're in that consideration phase. And then at that time too, hearing other people who you resonate with resonating with the product is probably really helps you push over the edge i also just said the thing that like we are now more used to than ever before um encountering random stuff and like your fyp on tiktok um and buying a product as a result of like some stranger saying hey i actually really like this so you know there's obviously like an intersection between like what our organic influencer strategies might look like relative to the whitelisting stuff but all of your ad content doesn't compete with other ad content. It also competes with like people's overall attention on the screen as you're scrolling because the likelihood of them scrolling past it, uh, whether it's on TikTok or Instagram or wherever, right? Like it's the same for an ad as it is for organic content, assuming that the ad content is good, right? So you at a minimum need to like make sure the ad content is worthy of like the attention even before people recognize it's an ad. And then after they recognize it's an ad, like, oh, I'm going to stick around even though I know it's an ad. And like the, the the nature of the content begets that, which is why like having variety is helpful. And I just think it's really important to recognize that like whitelisting isn't just creator and influencer. It's, it's anything, right? Like if I could advertise as literally any publisher that it's like name recognizable, like I would do that. So, you know, can we create opportunities for people to trust publishers they've never heard of? You know, Yes, um, because it doesn't boil down to who you are, boils down to what you're saying and how you're saying it. Yeah, I cannot reiterate what Ed just said enough. Like it, 100% is that it's so much more. We have brands that are like, oh, we've you know, whitelisting is just like a handle. I'm like, it's so much more than that. There's so much more that goes into it of the around the creative strategy and around that landing page strategy and like how not only the topics of it, but how it's actually written and how you're conveying that um, and who you're conveying it to is so important and it's something that can definitely be overlooked when brands are you know new to this and just kind of trying to figure it out on their own versus working with someone in the space it's just really funny because like i think as as marketers we tend to optimize against a baseline like my bau brand handle performance is n and the whitelisting one needs to be 1.2N or like from a CVR perspective or like 0.8N from a CPA perspective, which makes sense given like cost. You need to pay, you need to like offset the, like any sort of like percent of media spend or like the whitelisting fee, whatever, right? But what I'm finding as I talk about this and I think about whitelisting strategy over time is that like maybe we actually need to optimize against, I think people are more cynical about being served ads from a brand if that brand is not trying hard enough to be like funny or like chaotic or like bending their brand enough to fit within the context of the app let alone the subcultures that you end up inadvertently targeting within the app right like you know your fyp on tiktok different than my fyp so we're on different ends of tiktok but we all understand like the overall chaotic nature of like the content on tiktok anyway right so there's like a 
presumption that we might need to behave that way on TikTok on ads to maybe be successful. And when people see a brand as a handle, they might be a little bit more cynical if even the brand tries to do that, but might be more receptive if some random stranger does that on behalf of a brand, right? So sort of like optimizing against yourself as opposed to like improving what you would do, you actually sort of have to ask yourself, can I even do it? Yeah. Like the, the comparison thing is something you really can't do when you're a brand, because obviously you're going to say that you're the best. Yeah. And I almost said something I've been thinking about throughout this conversation. It's like word of mouth is one of the oldest forms of marketing, right? Like that's how a lot of things heard it through the grapevine. Grown. That's been exactly. dawning on we me. We literally yeah. heard it through the grapevine. So word of mouth is so big. And, you know, I'm going to trust opinions of like restaurants if I hear something from a friend versus if I read or, you know, versus if like I, I see an ad from, from the restaurant or any product. And so this is just like an almost like a viral word of mouth strategy to really get that social proof and, and get people that you know, you have someone that looks like you, feels like you, talks like you, you can relate to that's telling you something versus the brand is telling you something. And to your point, Ed, it allows you to be more free. Like, I, you know, as working with, with, our, with our agency, with Pilot House, we're constantly in these conversations about how performant our creative can be versus how branded it has to be. And it's crazy that's still a conversation, but it definitely is still. And I feel like, you know, one of, being able to have it come from someone else gives you a, like a little bit more freedom in, in how you can do it. So whether it's a you know, comparison chart that you're talking about, it's funny at Pilot House, we have this thing that we talk about on the, on the podcast called third party brands, where we spin up like a publisher essentially, uh, so that we can whitelist from that publisher. So, you know, we, we th themed publishers. So like on the desk for someone, if it's jewelry or wallets or things like that, we have a, a site for that, but it's like, it's honestly that it's kind of astroturfed. It's like, we basically just put out this site with a few articles on it. It's not like a living, breathing publisher's site with you guys. You do it differently, right? You have publishers that kind of roll up your whitelisted content into like actual public themed publishers, which I think is an, an, a good part of the strategy. Yeah, we just have the we do just have the one publisher for now. But to your point, we're launching five themed publishers in the next one to two months. One of them will be pet specific because we recognize that there's just you know something that people are increasingly focused on, and and so hearing from a pet focused blog. Spoiler alert: it will be called a round of a pause, and I'm very excited for it. <laughs> Love a pun. Love a good pun. <laughs> yeah, I'm like you know imagine reading now about about farmer's dog or anyone else on a blog called like a round of a pause. And there's going to be a lot of other content on there also about pets and pa pet parenting. And it's, it's just the whole flow is, is really seamless. It also creates opportunities for like those individual publishers to generate affiliate commission as well. So it's like not just yeah. one vertical, yeah. it's many others. So it's pretty smart. Chance to create a real flywheel if, uh, and then you get it SEO ranked eventually. And there's, there's a, a world of opportunity there. Ed, what do you see as the future of uh, your uh, influencer creator program through Grapevine? Just going to kind of keep keep on keeping on? How's, how's it scaling? I mean, it's scaling well. I mean, we every week we sort of increase spend a little bit more um, as we test into different uh, types of creatives and different types of landing pages and articles. So, I mean, certainly our performance is good enough to offset the cost of production and the media costs. So we're happy there. Um, it exceeds it. So... It is competitive with our own BAU stuff, and it's just generally we're very, we we believe in boat building, so it's just really nice to have more than a single handle advertising on our behalf. Naturally, we are we need to be careful about like overlap between the different handles, but like whatever, right? Like if the performance is coming through um, a great buy own handle, then we will shift more dollars into it as long as it continues performing. And so far, so good. 
But for, for me, I think the next evolution of our relationship really boils down to what kind of tests can we come up with that really knock that out of the park, right? Like I'm not interested in like small changes. I'm interested in doing big changes. And that's sort of how we're trying to treat all of our creatives across all our partners and uh, our own internal stuff. And um, yeah, I mean, we're fully confident we can make big strides and uh, the creative that we have here. At any given time, how like what is the breakdown of like the number of creators who are producing the content? Is it like one or two that you've really locked on with, or is it more like ten of ones that you're testing at any given time? Like, what is what does the the scale of creators look like on a platform like Grapevine for you, Ed? I mean, I think it really depends on the number, the amount of budget that we're willing to allocate at that point in time, right? I, I feel that. The, the, a different way of asking your question is sort of like the quintessential question of anyone who got into marketing who doesn't know how to do paid social. It's like, well, how many ads should I request for my creatives? It's like, the answer is as many as you can get, right? Independent of whether or not you can run them because having options is better than not having options. So the, the, my best answer is like, there isn't a specific number. The, the, the number is N, N relative to volume of spend relative to the distribution of said volume across what is actually working and what is not working. So we always like having some creatives in reserve. Um, we always like having ideas in reserve and being able to like execute on them really quickly or even like changing our product roadmap or creative roadmap with Grapevine like overnight and being like, hey, you know, I know we were working on this, but like this now is working really well. Can we get variation A3 instead of getting new creative B, right? To continue iterating on what was working because at the end of the day, like I get paid and Grapevine gets paid on the grounds of our CPA going down and our volume going up. So for us, it's about remaining as flexible as possible and not holding ourselves accountable to some like random number of creatives we need to get in order to distribute them evenly. Like, I don't really care for spending on one creative or 20. I just care that the performance is better and our roadmap reflects how our performance is getting better. Caroline, I want to ask you from your perspective, like you've worked, you've mentioned a few, you know, obviously the farmer's dogs have really established a high scale business. What, what scale of business do you generally find is the sweet spot with, with Grapevine? Yeah, good question. Our business model is such that we can work with a, you know, the small one to $5 million Shopify store. We can also work with the unicorn. So whether it's farmer's dog, pros, um, that being said, I would say that the sweet spot is, it's not, I wouldn't say that it's in terms of like how much, how much revenue they make or how big they are. It's really going to be, have they cracked Facebook for themselves? And do they have solid Facebook performance um, that they can grow and scale on their own? And then we can plug in and help grow that. I've worked with brands before where they haven't had that. And they've looked at this as a silver bullet to be like, oh, well, we can make this work. And it's hard to make something work when you haven't quite figured out your own messaging and your audiences and all of that on your own. So that being said, like if I had to pick a number, it's probably if a brand is spending like 75 to 100K a month already on their own ads, we see solid performance. Below that, it can be hit or miss, but it's going to be more about like how mature are they in the Facebook space in general with their performance. Makes sense. And obviously, it's everyone's looking for incremental scale, right? And I think that's something by going into this creator market, by going into the whitelisted handles, you're sort of like, you're going to uncover new audiences. You're going to uncover new blind spots and it is going to be incremental, right? Yeah, so we're definitely seeing, and I mean, I can also speak to this, but it's a ton of incrementality um, and to the point of reaching new audiences, reaching higher LTV audiences as well. We heard a, a stat from a brand the other day that consumers that came from our ads were picking up subscriptions at double the rate of consumers that came from their own ads. So yeah, the CPA is better as well. But when you look at the quality of customer, it's also like, you know, Ed was saying before, touching on the different types of customers, the quality of customer that comes from this, you think about it, if they 
saw watched a video and read an article and now they're making a purchase they're so much more educated they're so much more likely just to stay a customer for longer and to adopt that subscription have a higher ltv and so it's also incremental in that way it's also i think about the future i i think about ai all the time and how ai is sort of like the goal with like ai in terms of ad serving whether you think about google or facebook is going to be to like limit the options that you have available to you to like the best option like that's that yeah, google's going to get rid of you're not going to have search listings for everything you're just going to have like the best thing and so that's why i think like whitelisting it, it's because it gives you that other view that other persona it's going to be more and more essential as we go on as as the as we get funneled to the best ai option you're going to want to have these other voices kind of sharing about your product because it you're going to lose the opportunity for visibility in the search feed i think potentially so you need to have these other other stations if, if that makes sense it totally does and it's not just the different handles it's also the type of creator and it's also how that creative is designed and communicated right like you can go as far as like saying yes whitelisting ads might be get a different customer than BAU, your own brand handle ads. But you can take that one step further, right? Like you can say image assets versus video assets in your own brand will perform differently to get a different type of customer. Same thing for like the whitelisted component. And even within whitelisted components, you have creator, TikTok type person, or you have like millennial Instagrammer, totally different vibes, totally different types of people. And even within those categories, you have the type of content that they're putting out, right? I mean, you could easily do an image ad or like a carousel ad that features like a celebrity because they're not going to like film themselves with like their phone and say like, oh yeah, I really love this product, right? Like I think it's like Caraway who's doing like Tan France inspired like ads right now. And like, you know, it's not like Tan France is actually filming himself saying, hey, shop now, right? So that's a carousel ad. And I think that begins a different type of customer independent of it being a celebrity or not. Um, same thing with like, I think I was talking with someone else about like, if you find an ad, or like a piece of content that you don't realize is an ad, but it's like someone interviewing someone at like a park, like Washington Square Park in New York or whatever, right? That's different than the same interview, the same words being shared, the same questions being answered in a podcast setting, because visually speaking, that content will resonate with someone different according to, to your point, Meta's machine learning and TikTok machine learning, the way they identify where the impression should be served which is not just a function of the individual user, but also who interacted with it in the first, I don't know, N impressions that were served during the learning phase, right? So I think this really just boils down to like marketers, if they're not doing this yet, they need to start thinking about like the creative is the targeting. So when we say something like audience, it can be very misleading, right? Because it could be interpreted as, oh, you're doing a lookalike audience off of like grapevines, I don't know, great buying buyers or like people who visited um, that specific landing page. And it's like, cool, yeah, do that. But that's not really the only lever for audience. It's actually the creative that you launched within the audience that you targeted. So you can do broad match or broad targeting on meta um, and broad targeting on TikTok and leverage ASC on meta or smart campaign for smart bidding on TikTok and allow the creative to find the niche within all of the country that you're advertising to. And like, that's what AI is doing for you today. If you're not thinking about it that way, you, you should be. This, this is the cause of a creative mix modeling that I'm thinking about. Like, what is the right balance of creatives I need to have in order for to justify my CPA? Because if my CPA varies on the type of creative I have and the type of creative I have to get different types of customers, I can afford higher CPAs if I just change the type of creative to getting different types of customers. And I think that's really where the magic is. When when you go fishing, you don't go with one lure, 
there's there's a tackle box for a reason. And so I think having different lines in the water, different pieces of tackle, essentially will will beget broader broader customers, more customers. Um, Carolyn, what do you see? Like, what's on the roadmap? You mentioned uh, more publishers, and I think that's a really big one. What what else is on the roadmap for for Grapevine in the future? I would say the biggest things is just more publishers, continued creative testing, continued content expansion, continued creator expansion. We really learn from our brands, honestly, and we kind of let the brands guide our roadmap. And that's one reason we've loved working with Ed is he has been, you know, we'll say like, hey, what do you think about this? And we have these relationships with brands where we really let them guide our strategy. I would never want to create something with the idea that a brand would like it and that they're going to you know, this would be so helpful for them and then have them say, no, actually, I hate this. This is terrible. So um, it's, you know, definitely the publishers, definitely more creators, definitely continuing to level up creative and the content. But the other piece of it is really learning from brands and learning what they need and what they want and how can we continue to plug in the gap and fill them. At the end of the day, we just want to empower growth marketers to do their job and do it better. We love we love to manifest on the on so we and we have you know thousands of D 2 C brands listening. Who are the D 2 C brands you want to reach out to you at Grapevine.ai? Oh, that's such a good question. <laughs> um, let's see who comes to mind. Um, I mean, Caraway is one that we that we look at. That we, that, I mean, I have the Caraway pans. I love them. Even their um, profile, you can call out specific brands. I love that. Like Ryan Reynolds, if you're listening, you got to come on the podcast. <laughs> okay, so Ryan Reynolds, if yeah. you're listening, I agree. Um, profile, I would say. Brands that are, you know, wanting to do more whitelisting and struggling with where to start and kind of just want someone to educate and help guide and partner with them and people that are going to be open to testing um, and really collaborative. We like building meaningful relationships with the partners that we work with as well. So someone that wants that and is, again, probably spending enough to make it to justify it uh, and to be able to test. So, yeah, it's going to be the biggest things. And then what about the farmer's dog? What's what's uh, what's the roadmap for the farmer's dog look like uh, over 2023? We're just going to keep crushing it. Let's do Feed, it. Feeding dogs high quality food delivered fresh to your door. I got to get some. I've, I've been I've been feeding my dog just uh, grocery store slop, and and but he he is doing well. If people comment, he always looks younger than he is. But I think if I if I get him on some farmer's dog diet, he'd he'd do even better. I think we can definitely arrange that. Nice. Yeah, we've had a we had one of a creator that did content for the farmer's dog, and she it's funny she actually is a growth marketer at another has, has been a growth marketer at another other brands that we've worked with, which is fun that like some of the marketers that we work with join the platform as creators. Anyhow, she gave her dog like diet food from the vet and like the dog gained weight on the diet food from the vet, gave the dog farmer's dog, farmer's dog lost, I think like three or four pounds in the first two weeks. Maybe I should try it. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it wasn't two weeks, but it was like, the dog lost more weight in a shorter amount of time than it ever had before. And she's like, I'm addicted, obsessed. Let's go. Nice. Well, we're really happy with the impact we're having on dogs and uh, their families. So, you know, we like what we do and we're going to keep doing it. Well, almost every growth marketer I know has a dog. So I think hopefully this podcast can serve dual purposes of alerting the, you know, the world to Grapevine and the farmer's dog. Get some clients for both of you. That's that's the goal. Cool, yeah. Help us get cut down. Yep. <laughs> We love hearing from our listeners and would love to continue the conversation. So please visit grapevine.ai or email Caroline directly at hello at grapevine.ai to learn more about Grapevine and keep the conversation going. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumer, all one word, dot co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.